On this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to continue talking about symbolic experiential therapy. And I know in the last episode, I kind of introduced you to Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir, and I shared with you how excited I was to talk about this particular type of therapy, because it's the type of therapy that I myself utilize and practice. And so on this week's episode of Isolated But Not Alone, we're going to kind of focus in again on Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir, and we're going to talk about the unique ways in which these two did therapy. So stay tuned. Hi, this is James Rains, and you're listening to Isolated But Not Alone, a podcast that seeks to bring mental health awareness to rural and isolated communities. I just wanted to take this time to let you know that this and other content produced by James Rains is not therapy and is not intended to be therapy or to replace therapy. Nothing in this podcast indicates or creates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek one in your area if you are experiencing any type of mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as specific life advice, and it is simply for the purpose of education. Welcome back to Isolated But Not Alone. Today in southwest Minnesota, I woke up to a nice negative 17 temperature. (laughs) That is the type of cold where you don't really feel like getting out of bed or really doing anything, but least of all, going outside in any way. And so as I sat this morning looking at the frost on all the windows of my house and thinking about how cold it actually was outside. I debated even coming in today to record this podcast. You know, it's the type of cold where you pre-start your car for 15 minutes and it's like you just started it when you went outside. The type of cold where you layer more than normal and even then you feel chilled to the bone. And so here I am in the office Luckily, the office is nice and warm, and it was only like a five-minute trip to get here. And when I think of that type of cold, I'm reminded of the fact that I do live in Minnesota, and I know that when I live down south in Alabama, that I much preferred uh, the nice, casual winters there versus the deep cold that I've experienced here. Unfortunately, I didn't quite like the hot heat in the summertime. So it's kind of one of those trade-offs you have to make in life. And I much rather enjoy the cold than hot. So here I am living in this nice uh, cold climate. So today we're going to continue or pick up where we left off last week with talking about experiential therapy. And I introduce you to two characters, Carl Whitaker and Virginia Satir. And I discussed how they're very different characters. Carl Whitaker is brash, brazen. He had been quoted as saying, you know, technique or methods are kind of what the therapist uses as a novice until the real therapist has the courage to show up. That's just kind of a quote from Carl Whitaker. And then I contrasted that with Virginia Satir, who is kind of a maternal figure, a motherly figure, who is very touch-oriented. 
And so now we're going to dive a little bit more into symbolic experiential therapy. So when I came to Carl Whitaker's type of experiential therapy, there were two really important themes that he felt had to happen in order for therapy to be successful. He actually entitled them battles. So he felt that there were two battles that had to take place in every therapy session. And that depending on how the battles played out would determine the success or failure of therapy. So for example, one of the battles he felt had to happen is what he had entitled the battle for initiative. And he felt like the family needed to win this battle. And this was the therapist kind of interacting with the family in a way that the family believed they are doing the work and they took initiative for change. Now I've heard this talked about many different ways and I've seen many different perspectives of kind of this battle for initiative. Another more simplistic way I've heard it described is that the family was responsible for what they did in and out of therapy in order to enact change. So basically, the family was responsible for their own change. Now, remember, we had talked about on the last podcast that in symbolic experiential therapy, the family is, is naturally healthy. It has its own healing mechanisms that are internal and set in place already. And that families sometimes get stuck and then need the help of an outside individual to kind of help them get unstuck so that the natural processes of the family can take over and heal the family. Now, with that in mind, they're responsible for their change. So that was the first battle that Carl Whitaker believed need to happen in the therapy session and that the family needed to win that battle. We'll talk a little bit about what it would look like if they didn't win the battle here in just a second. The other battle that he felt needed to take place was the battle for structure. And he felt the therapist is supposed to win this battle. And this is the therapist setting up therapy so that the family believes that the therapist is in charge of how the sessions are ran, who comes or does not come, and what is expected, not expected, or what is done, not done. So that was kind of what Carl Whitaker described as the battle of structure. And he felt the therapist had to win that battle. The therapist was responsible for kind of the logistics of how therapy was to look. When it would happen, whether weekly, multiple times a week, every other week, once a month, or who would be allowed to come or not come. So for example, this person may be allowed to come based on the therapist's request, but this person may not be at this point in time. And so that was kind of the battle for structure. And here was kind of the issue with the battles. Now, if, for example, the family did not win the battle for initiative. What that might look like is they came in and they were expecting that the therapist provide change for them. That the therapist did more work than they did. And this is kind of a cliche or colloquialism within the therapy world is you don't want to do more work than your client. And if you are doing more work than your client, there's something wrong in the dynamic. And so that's kind of the mentality here, is that if the family's not fighting and not winning the battle for initiative, that means they're not actively participating in their own therapy, which negates the possibility 
of successful therapy. Because remember, again, as we're going back, the family is responsible for change. It has its own healing mechanisms. But they have to enact and make those attempts at change. So jumping back to the battle for structure, what can happen here is, and I've experienced this myself on many occasions, because as I said, I do more of an integrative approach. So experiential kind of goes against, in some ways, some of the other therapies that I utilize. And so sometimes because of this integrative approach, I can find myself struggling back and forth between two conflicting ideals and trying to find that happy medium between the two. So for example, one thing that I feel is very important in therapy, which is a core value of mine, is having therapy that's person-centered, which is client-centered. However, the battle for structure, in a way, is butting heads with that. Because the battle for structure says the therapist is in charge of how the therapy sessions look, what happens in the therapy sessions, who is and is not allowed to come. Which seems to go against that kind of person-centered, client-centered, where the client, the person, sets the pace and the rules in some regard to how therapy looks. And sometimes it can be kind of finding that middle ground between the two of those that can be very difficult and challenging for me personally. Where I have found myself negating more towards person-centered and then utilizing experiential therapy and then struggling with the issue of now the client is setting the pace and it's going against some of the interventions that I want to use. Right, And so that's kind of what I mean by that sometimes they butt heads with each other. But the battle of structure looks like this, at least in the understanding of Carl Whitaker. That is, if, if the therapist loses the battle for structure, there's going to be issues between the dynamics that occur within the therapy session. Another term or idea that Carl Whitaker proposed was something that's called craziness. And I like that term because we all have these like preconceived notions about what therapy is supposed to be like. And one of the preconceived notions or the generalities, stereotypes that are out there is that therapists never use the word crazy, right? Because, ooh, crazy. We don't want to ever say crazy. But sometimes things in life are crazy. We have to own that. That people use that terminology on a regular basis. And sometimes things are just crazy. That's just how we relate. That's the word we connect with. And so the word craziness here referred to the therapist kind of going to the extreme. I've heard people use the phrase pushing the envelope of what the family can handle. It causes the family or forces the family out of this rut into a new experience that pushes them beyond what they would normally be able to do. To give a percentage of what that means, and I've heard this said many different times when people have described this type of therapy, is that the therapist goes 100% so that the family goes maybe 50%. So the therapist is going to the extreme so that the family will be pulled in a way out of their rut or out of their trap in order to be just maybe even a little bit different than they were before. So it's kind of like this change process where the therapist is using exaggeration and extremes, oftentimes symbolically, to kind of help the family get out of where they're stuck. And the deeper thought here 
is that it's getting the family out of these restrictive, maybe inhibiting rules that they have placed on their lives that are keeping them trapped, keeping them stuck. And it's doing so in a safe environment so that the clients can experience this maybe symbolically and be safe and realize that it can happen. It provides this new experience in the session for them. Some other terms that were kind of synonymous with Carl Whitaker and this type of therapy were alienation, which is kind of this emotional shut off. We're not aware of our own thoughts and feelings, kind of what we had talked about with differentiation with Bowen, where his goal was to help people to achieve differentiation, meaning they could understand their thoughts and feelings apart from each other, as well as understanding their thoughts and feelings apart from the thoughts and feelings of others. And so you're going to kind of see a little bit of Bowen here. And then another term that I think is really, or a phrase that became a coined term in this type of therapy was flight to health. And I've experienced this one as well, where families start to heal themselves. So you have been successful as a therapist and coaching the family, providing new in-session experiences for them. And you have gone maybe to the extreme with the family. And now the family has kind of moved out of their stuckness to where those natural healing mechanisms of the family are now in place. And it's kind of like this momentum has been gained and things start moving towards health. They have experienced enough growth that they suddenly just terminate therapy and they go on to continue the process of change on their own. And I've experienced that where you're working with a family and they come in with things that have gotten them stuck. You have coached them. You have utilized the strategy of craziness to help them move out of that place where they are stuck. Things seem to be going very well in the therapy sessions. And then without any type of communication or follow-up, all of a sudden the family is no longer coming to therapy. And when you reach out to them, you hear very similar phrases often, but the core belief or the core statement or the core thought is that we are doing well and we no longer need therapy. This is where the family has continued to grow and has realized they no longer need therapy and have continued in their growth without the therapist. And these things are going to be very different than Virginia Satir. And I'm looking at the time. We're running out of time here. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about Virginia Satir today. And then next podcast, I'll do a little bit more follow-up on her. And then we'll kind of jump into the other therapies. Virginia Satir was really influenced by her time at the Mental Research Institute. We're going to talk more about that in the future because it connects more significantly with a different type of therapy. But... It helped her to understand and value the importance of communication. And this was something that Virginia Satir brought in to the therapy session. Virginia Satir had these styles of how people communicated. She felt that some people placated. And I've always referred to this as Minnesota nice, <laughs> where it's the most passive aggressive uh, type of niceness you've ever seen. And I know people from all around the world listen to this podcast. So Minnesota Nice, if you're from the United States, you may have heard this. If not, it's basically this pleasantness that people from Minnesota seem to have. 
this kind of down-to-earth, homey kind of kindness that seems to come naturally from people from Minnesota. Right? Now, if you live in Minnesota, you realize that oftentimes this Minnesota nice is also veiled passive aggression. <laughs> and it's kind of this thing of like deeply rooted sarcasm that comes out nicely. <laughs> and for people who aren't used to that, that could be extremely offensive. Or it just doesn't make sense. I remember living in Alaska after living in Minnesota for many years. And people in Alaska, at least in the location I lived at, were not passive-aggressive at all. Maybe aggressive, but not passive-aggressive in their communication. And so Minnesota nice was confusing to them because they didn't quite understand if I was being, if I was kidding, telling a joke, or being serious in my communication. Another one was avoiding that some people... You know, they play quiet, they act dumb, they kind of retreat from the situation or maybe even escape. Some people blame. They play the blame game. They judge. They bully. It's the other person's fault. They complain a lot. They're constantly negative. Computing was another term that she used. This was kind of like that logic. We've all met this person that when they come into conflict, they all of a sudden start to lecture us. They start to case build against us. They use their intelligence as a tool to keep themselves safe and to harm us. Then there's leveling. This was kind of like real, healthy communication that was congruent. Remember we kind of talked about masks before? We have this resentment maybe inside of us about something because we've never discussed it with our partner. We just expect them to know. They don't. And we put on a face that doesn't tell the truth about how we feel. That's incongruency. So communication, in her mind, was congruent as well. So we're going to kind of end there for today. And we're going to go on, next podcast, to kind of talk about some more of her methods, which are very interesting. So I hope you continue to listen to the podcast, to follow, share, like, make comments, tell other people. And remember, you might be isolated, but you're not alone. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast enough to share it with friends and family, and reach out with any questions you might have about mental health, and we will do our best in future shows to answer those questions. And remember, it might feel like you're isolated, and maybe you are, but you're not alone.